We are outdoor ladies who hunt, shoot, and fish, all while working in conservation and chasing kids. I am Julia Plugge with the Nebraska Game and Parks Commission. I'm Rachel Alice with the Iowa Department of Natural Resources. And I'm Tana Fancher with the Kansas Department of Wildlife Parks. Follow us on our outdoor adventures. Welcome back to She Goes Outdoors. Last episode, we talked about our goals. I, Rachel, Tana, and I, we talked about like what either new hunt we want to experience this fall or what skill we want to try for the first time or perhaps something that we just want to get better at. Uh, you know, Rachel and I both commented that we wanted to pursue waterfowl hunting more extensively. Uh, you know, Rachel has, I think, been out a little bit. Unfortunately, she's not on with us this episode, but, you know, she has, you know, dabbled in it in a little bit. And, and I, let's just say I dabbled only by literally sitting in a blind and just like watching, observing the uh, waterfowl hunters around me. But it was a great experience because I, I got to enjoy lunch in the blind. And I think maybe that sometimes is the but that could be a whole different topic in itself. When I, you walk up to blind, there's a lot of decoys. The calls are just like, wow, there's, there's it's some intensity there. Um, you know, and Rachel being from the coast in a completely different flyaway zone, uh, and I think we'll, we'll get into that conversation later on, what a flyaway zone is. Um, it's different than what we are in Nebraska and Kansas. So meaning different as the species that are overhead. And so basically what I'm trying to say here is there's a, there's a lot to learn about waterfowl hunting. And I sometimes feel that perhaps it may, you know, myself included, keep people away. And so today I've brought in um, a guest that Tana and I are going to uh, really question a lot because he is an avid waterfowl hunter. I mean, I think he breathes in everything waterfowl, sleeps waterfowl, talks waterfowl. Um, in the next given months, it's going to just be overtake. Anyways, you know, so our guest is perfect for today's topic of conversation, waterfowl hunting. Uh, and we're going to get into why we've brought him here in the conversation as to what are ways that we can introduce, help unexperienced waterfowl hunters get into the field and Nebraska has with South Dakota has recently started piloting a program and I'm hoping and I know he will be able to explain this to us in more detail when not in the blind or tree stand our guest Jackson Ellis is Nebraska's hunting education coordinator uh welcome Jackson will you please introduce yourself yeah, absolutely. Well, first off, thanks for having me. I uh, love love being the invite to be on your podcast. But uh, yeah, I'm Jackson Ellis. Um, I work for the Nebraska Game and Parks Commission pretty closely with Julia here in the office. And uh, yeah, when I'm when I'm not in the office, I'm usually doing something hunting related, even during the summer. So um, waterfowl has kind of become one of my main passions for hunting. Um, I'm a big deer hunter as well, but I go back and forth and I I love the waterfowl. I uh, grew up deer hunting. Um, that's kind of what my family did. And then in college, um, I was introduced to duck hunting um, with some of my fraternity brothers. So 
Um, they, their family were longtime waterfowlers. I just never really experienced it. And, uh, and they kind of took me under their wing, so to speak, and uh, pun intended. And uh, it, so, yeah, I uh, fell in love with it. And now I'm completely hooked. I've got trailers full of decoys and my shed and garage is just lines and gear. And we do, uh, we take a couple of trips every year to hunt ducks in different states. And basically from September through um, first week of February, I'm probably chasing something something feathered. And Jackson makes a mean waterfowl dish. I should say a mean <laughs> waterfowl dish, whether it's smoked or whatever, it's absolutely delicious. So being in the same office with him, I'm, I'm really glad that he does go out, hunt this much, these birds and brings them in because we end up having the opportunity to, to have some flavor tastings. So we appreciate that. Absolutely. Absolutely. You know, eating, uh, it's, hunting's half the fun and being able to bring home what you what you harvest and put it on the table for people to enjoy that's that's the other half exactly and you know you just mentioned it a little bit uh what you, what got you interested in hunting waterfowl uh i think you said some fraternity brothers and yeah. anything else that got you in or they just basically gro- grabbed your hand and took you out there basically yeah i mean uh you know our deer season had ended for me and i uh they were i'd seen them go out and hunt ducks and they said get a pair of waders and come along with us next time and the rest is history. So, you know, it, uh, like you were kind of saying, it's, uh, waterfowling is kind of intimidating to get into for a lot of people for a multitude of different reasons. And so, um, you know, without them, I may not be quite the waterfowl that I am today. Who knows? They had the gear and the know-how and showed me the ropes and, and now it's kind of a, a team effort. I really, uh, I go back and forth because I'm personally, I don't really, uh, uh, identify as a, an introvert or an extrovert. I'm kind of in the middle. So I get my introvertedness uh, out when I'm deer hunting by myself in a tree stand. And then my, when I want to hang out with my group of friends, we go duck hunting. So that's, uh, it's kind of a, kind of a neat two-way street I like to play. I like that perspective, Jackson. That's cool. And I'm glad you're on today because you mentioned um, all the gear and like your sheds full of stuff. And I think from my perspective, that is part of what makes waterfowl hunting so intimidating to me. It's like, okay, yes, you have to identify ducks and there's specific regulations and all of that. But then also it's like, I don't necessarily have money for two dozen decoys or a place to put two dozen decoys. And what happens if I do buy two dozen decoys and get hooked like you did the rest of my life forever, which isn't a bad life to live, but it's, uh, you kind of spiral down that path quick, don't you, Jackson? Yes. Uh, yeah. I'm, <laughs> I'm kind of a gear junkie as it is. So water mm-hmm. is a huge problem for me. Um, yeah, I, I got to try the new gear. I got to, and it is, you know, as far as the expenses go, you know, waterfowling can be an expensive hobby, but it can, it, it can be as inexpensive as you want to make it. Um, you know, we've had great hunts where we only bring in six decoys. You know, we've, uh, uh, the public land hunting is an awesome option, especially in Nebraska. We've got a lot of great public land hunting, um, you know, Craigslist, um, and Facebook marketplace has been an awesome place where I just kind of peruse every now and again. And, um, someone's getting rid of their stuff and you can haggle with them a little bit. And um, so that's, that's where I've honestly picked up a lot of my gear is secondhand stuff. Um, you know, make sure it's not totally beat up. And uh, a lot of people are selling good stuff. It's got quite a few more years worth of, worth of uh, hunting. I'll have to keep that in mind. I am very much a hunting minimalist when it comes to gear, but my partner yeah. You guys have heard me talk about him before. He is a gear junkie. And so we butt heads on that sometimes going out in the field. I really want to get into this chat today. So 
Um, you know, Julia, obviously you guys are out in Nebraska. Along with Nebraska, Kansas is also in the central fly zone or the central flyway. Um, Jackson, can you explain a little bit more what that means? So the way I understand it, the U.S. Fish and Wildlife Service and its partners kind of manage migratory birds based largely on these routes that the birds follow when they're migrating between nesting and wintering areas. Is that right? That's exactly right. So in the, in the United States, there's basically four major flyways that we observe. Um, banding data has really shown that these flyways are you know, not set in stone. You see ducks jumping over into different flyways from time to time based off of the banding data and now the GPS data that we get. But yeah, for the most part, there's four distinct flyways. So going uh, east to west, we've got our Atlantic flyway and then our Mississippi flyway and the Mississippi River Valley. Uh, the central flyway, which is basically from, from the Nebraska-Iowa border um, to the Rocky Mountains. And then from the Rocky Mountains west uh, was the Pacific flyway to, to the coast. So, um, but yeah, you, you explained it perfectly. Basically, ducks hatch in the north, and they follow those flyways for the most part north to south. And so for, we do, uh, we're fortunate to have listeners from all over the U.S. Thank you guys so much for that. But just to clarify, so that central flyway is made up of um, Montana, Wyoming, Colorado, New Mexico, Texas, Oklahoma, Kansas, Nebraska, South Dakota, and North Dakota, and some of the Canadian provinces of Alberta, Saskatchewan, and the Northern Territories. But just wanted to clarify that for all of our listeners. And again, um, like Jackson mentioned, some of those states are a little bit split with mountain areas and things like that. But yeah, that, that's just so fascinating to me. Yep, it's uh, it's really interesting to watch. And now the you know the the banding data where they banned ducks and geese and can tell where they where they were banded and where they were harvested was how it was originally done. And now we've got GPS data where you can watch a certain duck as they go through the migration. And uh, and it's pretty interesting to see that old time banding data match up with the new the uh, new generation of, of GPS and real time data that we get. We love the data. You know, something that's so interesting and it's great to be a part of the Central Flyway is we see such a huge diversity of duck species. And that's what makes some of our areas such hotspots and hubs for waterfowl um, populations. It's not only habitat, but it's that diversity of species migrating through. So something that's come up multiple times already is that waterfowl ID and how tricky that can be, especially identifying waterfowl on the wing. So Jackson, can you tell us what it means to identify waterfowl on the wing? And then um, maybe talk about some key characteristics to look for when identifying waterfowl. Yeah, absolutely. So, you know, ducks in particular, you know, when we talk about waterfowl, it's ducks and geese and um, mergansers and different types of, of waterfowl birds. Identification for ducks, it's a big one because there are so many species of ducks. You know, a lot of people think of ducks and they think of mallards, you know, greenheads. That's what everybody pictures. But in Nebraska, we had this conversation the other day. There was a kind of a Facebook poll about how many species of ducks you can name off the top of your head. And uh, everybody in the office here kind of had a little challenge going on. And we you know, we rattled off, you know, 15, easily 15 species. And then we had a couple more that sometimes come through Nebraska, but, you know, there's a lot of, a lot of different species that come through Nebraska. And it's important to be able to identify those ducks um, because they have different population levels and they have different, uh, you know, some, some are more successful breeding in a certain year versus others. Um, and so we, we tailor that into our bag. As a duck hunter, you go out every day and you have a, a bag limit. And that bag limit is, you know, X amount of ducks, depending on the, the given year and the, the data that we're getting. And then that, that X amount of ducks is broken down into certain species. So 
within your bag limit. For, for example, you can only shoot five mallards. You can shoot two wood ducks. You can shoot one pintail, two canvas backs. So it's, it's important to be able to identify those ducks before you shoot because you know, otherwise you can get into a, a legal situation where you've, you've actually broken the law. You know, that's, that's kind of the, the important thing to remember when you're going out there duck hunting. And that's one of those other things that gets people intimidated about going out and duck. It, once you're a little more experienced and you've seen these ducks on the wing, you've held them in your hand, you've seen the, the guidebooks that we publish as an agency, you know, it becomes kind of a natural thing where those ducks fly by and you can say, there's a flock of mallards, those were teal, wood ducks, whatever. And you can watch um, certain characteristics. So like you said, um, they're all, they all have different plumage. So all the drakes have a, a very distinct plumage coloration. Some of their heads are green. Some of their heads are blue. Some of them are black. Some of them are iridescent. Their wings, all of their wings have a, a specific feather pattern, basically. So you can watch that the way that they fly, the shape of their head and neck and, and their tail feathers. Some have very long pointed tail feathers. Some are squared off. Um, so you can start to pick up on those things and, uh, and, and identify them as they're flying. So that's uh, kind of the, uh, the identification keys there, I guess. You can see there's a lot, to, a lot to think about there. And I wanted to mention real quick, so in addition to um, information that state agencies put out, U.S. Fish and Wildlife Service puts out, Ducks Unlimited has a really, really awesome app. So if you are new to waterfowl or just want to brush up on your waterfowl ID before you hit the water, I really encourage you guys to download that Ducks Unlimited app. They have a waterfowl ID portion of that app where you can go in and look at some of those key characteristics like Jackson mentioned um, and get a little bit more familiar with those on the water. Yeah, yep, absolutely. There's tons of resources out there. YouTube's a great resource. Um, you know, Anywhere where you can see those ducks, not only the plumages they're standing there, but as they're flying, um, it's, uh, there's a lot of resources out there, a lot of good stuff. If there can only be that app that you take a picture, like you do a plant, you take a picture of it and then I, like it automatically says it's a marigold. Like yeah. if you could just <laughs> put your phone up in the sky real quick, take a picture and it says, this is a mallard coming in. <laughs> Wouldn't that be cool? Jackson, <laughs> you get to be famous off that. You invent that. I was going to say, that's not a bad idea. Can you imagine oh. everybody in the duck blind and everybody's hunkered down? Yeah. Uh, flies over and everybody's phone sticks up out of the. <laughs> I know you need one that you can mount on the front of your shotgun or something. Yeah. That, that gets oh. tricky. I think patented. Yes. You can use a selfie stick, put it up in the air. Oh my gosh. Oh, I suppose not. But, um, you know, it, it certainly is overwhelming the the idea of, especially if you're new to waterfowling, like just an overwhelming idea of all these different uh, characteristics and species that you just mentioned. You know, with our role in R3, we, we, we have done some data and understand that that is a concern to why people aren't getting in, in waterfowl hunting. And so Nebraska in, in South Dakota is piloting a program to hopefully uh, maybe resolve that, give some ease to the beginning waterfowl hunters, or perhaps even the experienced as well. I've heard a lot of conversation about it in our office lately, and 
you know, while I'm just kind of absorbing it, don't know the full gist of it because I'm not in the field like they are. Tell us, Jackson, about the two-tier program and what is the overall goal of it? Why is this? How did it start? And where are we going with it? What is the goal of Nebraska and South Dakota too? First things first, like you mentioned, you know, identification has been noted as a big barrier to people getting into waterfowling. You know, from an R3 standpoint, we are not, you know, some places are losing hunters faster than others, but the scariest part is that our hunter age bracket is going up. And once that hunter age bracket hits a certain level, it's going to drop off even faster. So it's important to keep people hunting for a multitude of reasons, cultural, you know, financing our, our, our conservation efforts. There's a ton of reasons why hunters are important and we need to keep hunters in the field. And so, you know, we see this rapidly happening with waterfowlers. We're trying, we're trying different things to, to accomplish a goal of creating more hunters. Um, and one of those things is making it less intimidating. So um, you know, there's kind of this uh, perception out there that the two-tier system was just kind of a, a boom brain fart and that we just threw it together. But actually, this discussion has been going on for almost a decade now. Um, so it started with, uh, with one of the program uh, managers here in Nebraska, taking it to the federal you know, agencies and starting to start in this conversation, like I said, almost 10 years ago. And so it's been, it's been extremely well thought out and vetted and it's going to be, you know, there's going to be data collected and we're going to monitor it. And like you said, this is a pilot program. So this is, uh, you know, we'll, I'll kind of break it down, but basically what we're, it's called the two tier system. Um, normally everybody has the same bag limit. Okay. You can, everybody has the same number of ducks they can shoot per day broken down into the species and it's all the same and you have to identify your ducks. Well, the two-tier system allows people to choose. So when people go in to buy their licenses this year, everybody has to sign up for a HIP number. If you're over the age of uh, 15, so 16 and older, you got to get that HIP number. And you can choose whether you want tier one or tier two. So tier one, no change. You know, that's what I'll choose this year. I have, will have the full six duck bag limit and I have to identify the different species. For a new hunter who, who might be a little intimidated by identifying ducks, they can choose tier two. Tier two will allow them to shoot three ducks per day. So they can't shoot any more than three ducks per day, but they can shoot any three ducks, okay? So they don't have to worry about identifying a duck on the wing or misidentifying a duck and, and having a consequence tied to that. That's basically the, the gist of what this is and how it's going to be implemented. Um, so it'll be that based off of that hip number, and then they, they kind of go from there. The idea is that they get used to waterfowling, they experience it, they fall in love with it, just like I did, and then they move on, you know, eventually they will move on to tier one, and they'll be able to identify those ducks once they've gotten some experience under their belt of seeing those ducks in flight, experiencing a duck hunt, and uh, getting, your, getting, you know, getting your hands on a duck. That's kind of the, the thing. So South Dakota and Nebraska were approved for this, um, it's starting this year, so the 21-22 season, and, uh, and for the next four years. So that's, that's the pilot years that we've been uh, approved for this, and uh, we'll be monitoring it. Obviously, we'll, we'll keep track of who chooses Tier 1, who chooses Tier 2, what, the, what that breakdown is, that's easy. Um, but then also what the harvest statistics are looking like. So um, anybody who chooses Tier 2, that lower limit with no, no restrictions on, uh, on species, they'll get a, a journal. 
and they will keep track of how many days they hunted, what species they harvested, and then they'll also be asked to send in wings, um, just like uh, the, the federal wing program that's been going on for, for decades. So we'll gather a ton of data off of that, present it to, to the, the federal agencies, and, uh, and, and see where we go past that four-year mark. I'm just so fascinated by this. It's, it's so important because we have data showing how dedicated waterfowl hunters are. Like once we get people out in the field, just like Jackson, um, waterfowl hunters tend to get hooked and they're really dedicated supporters of wildlife management and conservation of hunting, et cetera, both financially, socially, politically, et cetera. So that's so important. But for someone like me who is intimidated and is, will do so much better, um, you know, I can look at pictures all day. I can look at YouTube and that's great. But being out in the field and seeing with my own eyes how something is flying or holding a dead bird in my hand and being able to really um, lock in on those characteristics, it's just so important and would make me feel so much better. So I'm so excited that this is something that Nebraska and South Dakota are exploring. Absolutely. And, you know, the central flyway is a perfect flyway to pilot this program in. You know, there's always that fear that some of those species with the lower limit, you know, the lower harvest limits or um, will be affected. That's kind of been one of the big areas that people are concerned about. You know, your hardcore duck hunters are, uh, are kind of worried about, and that's what we've gotten the most questions about. But the central flyway, we see a lot of different species, but that also means that we're, some of those species aren't as concentrated. So for example, Mississippi flyway sees a lot of canvasbacks. So we can only shoot two canvasbacks per day. In Nebraska, I've never seen more than two canvasbacks in a day. I know some people will say that, that they have and yada, yada, and everybody's got their own experiences, but um, we just don't see those high densities. The other thing is that these, these people who are choosing the tier two, um, they're not your hardcore duck hunters yet. They're not the guys that are out there three, four days a week that are hunting, you know, 20 plus days out of your season. Statistically, the average waterfowler hunts six days a year. And so the, the people that are choosing the tier two are going to be even lower than that. So um, even if they were going out and harvesting, you know, uh, flipping the, the lucky coin and har and seeing canvasbacks every single day, that's that's just statistically, it's just not going to happen. It's kind of going to be a moot point. I'm glad all that's being considered because I'm sure um, both newbies and avids alike have a lot of questions about that. Oh, yeah. Jackson, I wonder if you'll clarify a few things for me before we move into that, though, because I'm really yeah. curious and apologies if you've already mentioned some of this, but I want to be super clear. Mm -hmm. So is there's no price difference between these two options. Is that correct? Correct. Yep. Nope. Licenses and permits will be the same price. Um, that hip number is always a free thing. And that's uh, that's where this is generated off of. That's so cool. And how about like age restrictions for the program? Is this program open to anyone or is it just adults only, youth only? So the program's open to anyone. Um, the, the HIP number is only required when you're 16 or older. Kind of the age group that we're after here is kind of that. But if there's a youth who wants to get into the, the tier two program, all they have to do is register for HIP. You know, we have any state has it on their website, Nebraska and South Dakota. It'll be very obvious where to go this year. Um, and so if there's a youth that someone has taken out, maybe a, a mentor has taken out someone under the age of 16, um, they just need to register for HIP, shoot, select tier two. So yeah, it is open to anyone, um, anyone hunting waterfowl. So Jackson, you keep mentioning HIP. Um, I know that I've had to get my HIP number for when I uh, have went dove hunting. Mm -hmm. Explain, is it the same HIP that I have to have for dove hunting? Just get more into detail what the HIP is. Yeah. How do I get it? 
Is there a price for it? Is there the differences in age range? Can you just explain that in more detail? No, great question. I, I probably should have touched on that first. But um, so HIP is a it's an acronym because we're the government, right? We love acronyms. So <laughs> it's the Harvest Information Program, HIP. So um, what it's a it's a free number. It's just attached to your hunting permit. If you if you just you know most people just write it right on their permit. Um, and, and what it does is it allows us to capture your information to survey people, um, after season. So, um, it allows us to have their contact information for us to go in, survey them after season. And the main thing is, is migratory birds. So, so people need it for dove hunting, ducks, geese, um, uh, I believe rails, snipe, coots, those migratory birds, um, is basically what the hip, hip, uh, information program is, is after. So, it's free. Um, typically, it's only for adults, so 16 and older. Um, but like I said, for, for this, uh, this pilot program for the tier one and tier two, we, uh, we do uh, make it available for youth as well if, if they want to choose that tier two system. Yeah, that's kind of where it all came about. And as always, we like to encourage our listeners, um, if you are somewhere other than Nebraska, which is where Julia and Jackson are, are coming from, be sure to check your local regulations and um, call your state fish and wildlife agency if you have any questions about this. Obviously, we tend to focus on um, regulations that are specific to Nebraska, Kansas, Iowa, but don't forget to check on that because that's really important. Great point. Great point. So Jackson, I have kind of a complex question about this two-tier system that was brought up by a coworker. So let's say I start going out waterfowl hunting. I'm signed up for this second tier where I don't have to ID birds. I just have the reduced bag limit. What if I get really good at waterfowl ID in the first half of the season and the second half of the season, I decide I want to hunt without restrictions. Is there any way to switch which bag limit you have mid-season or do you sign up for the whole season? Good question. So your, your choice does, will reflect the entire season. So you can't, people cannot be going back and forth on it. Um, you know, the idea is that eventually those tier two will move into tier one, but it'll have to be on a year to year basis or season to season basis. So yeah, once you're, once you're locked into a tier, that's, that's what it is for the season. Um, and then you'll make that choice again um, for the next season. Awesome. Yeah. Thanks for clarifying. Waterfowl season flies by anyway, it seems. Yeah, it's certainly Pun intended. Does. No pun. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> oh my gosh. <laughs> We're all about the puns today. That's right. Yeah, no, great question. I know that was a big concern um, right off the bat when this was kind of first introduced. Um, there were a lot of people worried that people would be going back and forth. So if they're, you know, seeing a lot of pintails out there one day, they just switch their switch it over to tier two and they can go shoot three pintails the next day. Well, that's, that's not how this works. It's a, it's a, it's a season long thing. So it's a, it's a commitment that you make. I'm really intrigued about this journaling concept. I was actually just listening to a podcast this morning and it happened to be one of our most recent guests from Woods and Waters Project. And Mm -hmm. she was talking about how, you know, journaling is just a great tool for future hunting. That literally, if you're just observant, know your surroundings, you know, even the day you're out, note the weather, note what species you see, just like really be specific in what you're doing. And I really like this idea of the journal concept about waterfowl hunting too. You not only have that journal for yourself to kind of have a better idea of what's in the sky, 
perhaps maybe what's bringing them down what are you seeing but then in return it helps our biologists get a better idea for conservation efforts for species efforts it's just just a super cool idea perhaps maybe then that kind of takes away from those concerns of oh taking away a species or affecting a certain waterfowl season or how do I want to say that does a journal may help in the future so that we're not limiting the number of a certain species, if that's what I want to say. Yeah. Um, Jackson, will you tell us more about how they foresee this journaling to help uh, as far as the biologists and the game and parks perspective? Sure. Uh, you you raise an, a, a great, great point there. Not only, um, there's a lot of reasons to journal your hunts. And so I, I've got my journal right here. Um, I, I keep one throughout the year, both for deer and ducks. I, I keep track of where I was, where I was hunting, what the weather conditions were for that day, what we were hunting and how it went, what, how the birds reacted or what the deer were doing. And, um, and so personally, on a personal standpoint, that's made me, I think, a much more successful, um, hunter. So I can look back on my hunts. Um, I can write down and be really detailed in what happened. Um, and you kind of take out a little bit of the bias there. As far as the data collection goes, and specifically for this tier two or you know, two tier projects, um, it's going to give us a, an immense amount of data as far as who's using this, how successful they are, um, you know, what their feedback is on it, and also you know, how, what, what species are they taking. So that's, that's the big one that people are worried about is that this could potentially negatively impact some of those um, lower populated species. Um, you know, we've obviously there's been a ton of discussion around that in the, in the flyways, um, commissions and stuff, but, um, there it's, it's, it's data and it's vast, very, very important to waterfowl biologists and biologists in general, um, to know who's out there, who's harvesting what, at what rate and how it may be affecting a population on a given year, um, you know, there's a lot of ducks and geese that are that are shot throughout the United States, but um, as far as the the affecting their their breeding populations and such, it's uh, it's actually a drop in the bucket compared to um, what uh, um, what's actually happening out there in nature and and the the, uh, the mortality from um, nesting is is huge. And so you know when you're talking about increasing or decreasing, especially waterfowl populations really wildlife in general, it always comes down to habitat. Regulated, controlled hunting, very rarely, if ever, um, you know, is going to negatively impact those things. There's so much science and data built into it. And that's exactly what these journals are capturing. That makes a lot of sense. I love that. And I think it ties into a conversation we had, oh my gosh, Julia, like six months ago when we had Jen Rader join us to talk about Christmas bird counts and kind of the citizen science aspect of those uh, counts. It's the same idea, right, Jackson? Exactly. No, very, very, very accurate there. You know, this is more or less a citizen science type thing. Um, having as much data as we can possibly gather, who's out there, how much they're hunting, and uh, what they're harvesting is... Uh, crucially important to, to the decisions that biologists and game agencies make down the line. Right. And then, so this year, this is kind of a pilot program with just Nebraska and South Dakota, but if this turns out well, and the data we see from that is consistent sure. with some of the goals for this program, it's something that may be expanded, right? 
Yeah, you never know. It can absolutely expand. Um, it really just comes down to the data and what we're seeing. I mean, let's think about the other uh, experimental uh, things that we've, we've done as far as waterfowl goes. I mean, early teal season. You know, a lot of states now have early teal um, seasons because teal migrated so much earlier than regular ducks and they were here and gone before the seasons ever started. Um, and, you know, um, states started experimental pilot programs just like this. There was a set amount of years. The, the data collection was absolutely immense. Um, game wardens or conservation officers were out there surveying people, making sure that people were um, abiding by the rules and, and, um, and checking that data. And then we evaluated the data evaluated how it affected populations. And, um, and here we are where we've, we've locked in teal seasons now. There were a lot of people that were very against teal seasons to begin with, and now it's one of the most popular times to get out there and duck hunt. So because you've brought up teal, we gotta talk about that next. So this yep. two-tiered bag limit, will that affect other waterfowl you mentioned like teal or geese or any other species? Yep. Great question. So during the specific teal seasons in Nebraska and, and uh, I believe South Dakota has one as well, there will not be, uh, it, the two-tier system will not apply. So people will still need to identify those teal um, in the early seasons. You know, that, that September season, the, the, the real thing that we're looking for is um, resident ducks and wood ducks. So the teal, the blue wings and the, and the green wings migrate through very early, especially the blue wings. And um, so that's what people are after. But we do see a sprinkling of your resident um, breeding ducks and wood ducks in particular. And so you'll still need to identify those ducks. Um, the, the bag limits will still be a full six teal. But then once we get into a regular duck season, um, starting in October, depending on the zone or depending on your zone, that's when this, this two-tier system will, will come into play. As far as geese go, they're totally unaffected by the two-tier system. Um, the goose limits will still be the same. You'll still need to identify your geese. Um, you know, there's fewer geese species out there than there are ducks, and they are much easier to identify as far as your, your Canada's, your dark geese, your uh, speckle bellies, and, you know, your, your light geese, your, your uh, snow geese and Ross's geese, blue geese. So they're, they're much more easier to identify for a couple of reasons. Um, their plumage is just so much, so, such vastly different. And they also, geese are much more talkative and they sound way different. do not always hear, you know, nine times out of 10, ducks don't make much sound coming into a spread. Whereas geese, they're, they're talking the whole way. And you can pretty clearly tell the difference between a Canada, a speckle belly, and a snow goose. Jackson, I don't suppose you have any waterfowl calls sitting on your desk and want to do a demo for us. Hold on one second. I might. <laughs> I thought for sure you'd be like, yeah, just here's this collection. I do have one duck call, so I don't have a goose call I can demo for you, but I do have a mallard call if you would like to hear a demo. Jackson, we want to hear that duck call. Okay, all right. I'll, I'll give it my best. Ooh, I squeaked a little bit there, but... Yeah, kind of he had it going. I'm like, I could hear it coming down the hallway, too, as we're studying. <laughs> oh, my gosh. Yeah. Tana, I told you he was the uh, expert to ask on this conversation. Yeah, no kidding. Well, I think our Zoom audio probably freaked out for that just a little bit. It was really good. It might sound a little different over Zoom. Yeah, if, if it sounds bad, can we please blame Zoom? We'll, we'll blame the audio. We're blaming Absolutely. Zoom. We blame Zoom on everything anymore. 
Perfect. Exactly. So we have had a great conversation, lots of detail here. What additional questions that, I mean, we've covered a lot, but I can imagine that the world of waterfowlers is just is loaded with questions, whether they are beginners or they're an avid in the field. Are there questions that you have received that we haven't asked that you, you feel maybe our listeners should learn more about on these two-tier system? Yeah, absolutely. So like you said, there have been a quite, quite a few questions and we've covered a lot of them. Um, one of the other big ones that we get is, can hunters with different tiers hunt together? Um, and absolutely, that, uh, that's kind of the goal here is that, um, you know, mentors who are very experienced can take, you know, someone who's not as experienced out, they can be on that two-tier system and they don't have, you know, the mentor doesn't have to be quite as worried about what they're shooting um, and they can learn and, and teach. So that's absolutely, you do need to keep, you know, people uh, will say that, you know, what about passing ducks back and forth and yada, yada, that's already illegal. So if, if you're doing that, that's, that's kind of a, you know, a, a moot point there. Um, you know, you need to keep the ducks that you shot separate from the ducks that somebody else shot. You can't just keep them all in one big pile. Um, you know, if a game warden were to come up on you, um, you're, you're going to have to explain that. So yeah, just, just as you always should be, keep your ducks separate from, from everyone else's ducks. Um, so that if you're checked, it's, it's an easy, here are mine, here are my friends, they're on tier two, I'm on tier one. Um, yada, yada. But yeah, absolutely, they can hunt together. Um, so that's one of the other questions that we had. You know, how will law enforcement monitor it? It's going to be built right into your HIP number. So they'll, the game warden will be able to look at your HIP number and it'll be, you know, it's it's basically a, a dash in there. So it'll say dash tier one or dash. Um, so it'll be, it'll be right there for the game warden to be able to check if you are. And the other one is the possession limit. So you've got your daily bag limit. So how many ducks you can shoot in a single day. But then there's also the possession limit and how many ducks you can have in your possession. And this comes into account when you're maybe on a long weekend duck trip somewhere in a different state or across the state where you're staying overnight or something like that. You know, how will, how will your possession limit be affected? So your possession limit is in, in Nebraska, it's three times your daily bag limit. So I can keep basically three days worth of bag limits in my possession. Um, and it's exactly the same for the different tiers or the breakdown is the same for the two tiers. So it's, it's three times your daily bag limit. So myself with tier one, I can have 18 ducks broken down into this different species. And then, um, you know, the, anybody on tier two, same thing, three days of your daily bag limit. So nine ducks total. And those, those, those were kind of the big questions that we've gotten. Excellent uh, description or explanation of bag uh, limits and um, in your possession. That excellent way to explain that. And, you know, Tana Jackson mentioned about mentors. I think you recently seen a uh, some statistics on mentoring in a system like this. Yeah, so I don't want to get into too many of the details because I don't have that study in front of me right now, but I saw recently there was a webinar um, and it was representatives from Nebraska and South Dakota that had been working on this project. And I think maybe Delta Waterfowl was involved, but basically just kind of discussing some of the initial surveys when asking current waterfowl hunters whether or not they would support this additional option um, of the two-tiered system. And, you know, the data that came back was really interesting, but something that stuck out to me is that current waterfowl hunters indicated they would be more likely and more comfortable to mentor someone new if that mentee was using the second tier system where they didn't have to ID waterfowl. 
And I can totally see that because Julia, I know you served as a mentor in some capacity. I have as well. And it can be really intimidating as a mentor to know that you're not only responsible for yourself hunting and calling your own shot, making sure you're being ethical within your own like definition of what hunter ethics is, but then making that decision for someone else can just be absolutely terrifying. You don't want to tell them to shoot the wrong thing. You don't want them to have a bad experience. And so having a system like this, where that mentee can kind of have some of that responsibility, but also have that pressure taken away from both the mentee and the mentor to say, Hey, you know, you take your shot as long as it's a safe and ethical shot, then we'll talk about it later. Having that little opportunity is so important. So it's really cool to see that reflected in some of the preliminary data. I actually have a great story that kind of exemplifies that exact situation. So um, two years ago, a buddy and I took another friend out duck hunting for his first duck hunt. Um, he was in the military. He'd been deer hunting before, but he'd never waterfowl hunted. Um, so we took him out to a marsh. It was a great day. We'd, we'd shot some ducks um, throughout the morning and we'd already reached our pintail limit. So we each had shot our one pintail for the day. Um, so we could not shoot any more pintails. And we'd continued to see pintails throughout the morning. Um, at one point, we had a flock of teal come in and we shot into the flock and knocked down a handful of them. And uh, me and my other experienced buddy, um, because the marsh was so mucky, we ran out to grab, you know, when our waders ran out to get the other ducks. And while we're collecting them, another flock of birds started working as uh, our spread. And I hollered back, don't shoot them because I can't tell what they are from this distance. And I thought I'd scared the ducks away and he didn't shoot. And so he just, you know, sat there and the ducks actually swung over me one time and I saw that they were redheads and we could still shoot redheads. And as they came back into the spread, I, I hollered back, you know, they're redheads, go ahead and shoot them. And he shot a beautiful Drake redhead and knocked it down. So it was that we had that moment where it was like, oh, shoot, I don't, you know, we, I don't exactly know what these ducks are. We've already got our limit of the one species. He doesn't know what they are. Don't shoot. And so in that situation, you know, maybe uh, it would have made us all much more comfortable if he would have been a tier two, could have shot any duck. So, um. But you're, you used your hunter ed uh, experience <laughs> and yep. not knowing what you're shooting at, don't shoot. Yep. So, I mean, that's with waterfowl, that's with big game, that's with anything. If you don't know exactly what you're shooting, then don't shoot. Um, yeah, exactly to that point. It'd make a lot of people much more comfortable and we hope, you know, we hope that the data is going to show that people use it and people, uh, you know, they, they get to get more hunters out there in a responsible, legal, ethical way. Well, I hope it makes its way to Kansas because I think I would certainly um, take advantage of it. So Jackson, before we wrap up today, for those of us in states where we don't get to try the two-tiered bag limit this year, um, again, those states are Nebraska and South Dakota. What do I do if I am trying waterfowl hunting this year and I make a mistake and I shoot over the limit for a certain species, what's the correct ethical thing to do in that situation? I got two parts to my answer. So one, for those who are in a state where this isn't an option this year, if you're looking to get into waterfowling and you're worried about identification, a great way um, that I personally used and, and tell people to try or to use when they have that situation is what I call the duck in hand approach. So each flock of ducks, you shoot one duck. If you're a good shot, you know, you shoot, you shoot just one duck. If we knock one down, you don't shoot anymore. And you get that duck in your hand and you identify. Then another flock comes in and you shoot one duck. So every flock, you just shoot one and you get that bird in hand. 
until you reach that that certain species limit. So let's say I shoot my two canvas backs, then I'm done for the day. So it's a, it's a self-imposed limit. But once I hit that point where I, I'm not that good at identifying ducks on the wing, but I've got my you know limit of a certain species in my hand, that's then I'm done for the day. I've got my duck hunt accomplished. Um, and chances are you're going to get quite a few ducks before you actually hit that, that in-hand limit. But that's a great way to do that. Now, if you were out there and made, an, made a mistake, as with anything in life, own up to your mistakes, take responsibility for it, notify your game warden. Um, a lot of times they're going to be, they have some discretion. If you, if you give them a call and say, hey, I messed up, here's, here's what happened, you may get a ticket. You may not. That's going to be at the the, the uh, conservation officer's discretion. Um, but at that point, you've you know you've done all you can. You've done the right thing, and you've uh, you know, tried to atone for it. So anything, with just with anything in life, you try to get away with it, and you get caught. It's going to be much worse than if uh, than if you owned up to your mistake. I know for for uh, another kind of personal story here, but I had a, a hunter ed instructor who. 15 years ago, he accidentally shot a hen pheasant in Colorado. He called the game warden and uh, he, he ended up getting a lesser ticket basically than he would have anyways. And so when he applied to be a, a hunter ed instructor in Nebraska, he called me up immediately. He was like, hey, this is what happened, yada, yada. And he gave me the game warden's number because he still knew him actually. And, uh, and I called him up and he's like, yep, totally great guy. Just made an honest mistake. That's good. Well, I think that's good advice for our listeners and hopefully that puts folks mind at ease. Um, you know, there's no real price tag you can put on a clear conscience at the end of the day. So that very good. Advice. Yep. Okay. Well, this is like Julia said, this has been such a wonderful conversation. Jackson, we're so glad that you could join us today to shed some light on this program. I find it just so exciting and encouraging. I know Julia does too, as a, uh, you know, exploratory phase waterfowl hunter. So this is really exciting and I can't wait to see where it goes. Um, is there any last information you want to leave our listeners with today? Man, I think we've covered, we've, we've more or less covered all of it, but um, you know, if anybody has any questions, feel free to reach out to us and we'd be happy to answer them. Perfect. All right, y'all. Well, you heard it here. Um, give Jackson a ring anytime if you've got questions. <laughs> um, <laughs> if not, we are happy, you know, reach out to the She Goes Outdoors team. As you guys know, we love to help answer your questions or put you in contact with the right people like Jackson that are experts in that subject um, and can get those questions answered for you. So I'm real curious, if you guys are here in this episode, jump on our Facebook page and let us know what you think of the two-tier duck system and if that's something you would take advantage of. Um, I really want to hear from you guys and see if that's something you think would be interesting and we'll do our own little um our own little kind of informal poll there. All right. Well, other than that, it's been a fantastic conversation. Don't forget to subscribe to our podcast, guys. Um, if you want to get updates every time we post a new episode, be sure to hit that subscribe button, give us a like, and then also rate us as well. So let us know how we're doing, how we can improve the podcast. And of course, if there's any subject that you want to know more about or questions you have that you'd like to see us explore, um, be sure to let us know. So share us with your friends and family, um, get out in the field, be safe, have fun, try waterfowl hunting this year. And uh, hopefully we'll see you outdoors. Outdoors.